As the temperatures cool, the season of colds, flu, and now COVID-19 is heating up. If you're like many people, you've probably stocked up on over-the-counter cold medicine to help thwart the cough and runny nose circulating this time of year. But you might be questioning your arsenal right now. An FDA advisory panel just concluded that a very common decongestant called phenylephrine is not effective when taken orally. It is found in everything from some Sudafed products, namely those not behind the counter, to DayQuil. The FDA's document reviewing evidence for the efficacy of phenylephrine suggests it is not effective compared with placebo. But this is different from saying that phenylephrine is not effective per se. If you've ever taken a Sudafed PE pill and felt your nasal congestion clear up, it's probably because your nasal congestion actually did clear up. That is because the placebo effect reduces symptoms. Dismissing it entirely does not help patients. That was Michael Bernstein, an assistant professor of diagnostic imaging at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and a research scientist at Rhode Island Hospital. He was reading from his recent first opinion essay on the placebo effect and phenylephrine, which he co-wrote with his colleague Grayson L. Baird. After a quick break, I'll bring you a conversation about the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, and what it means for medical intervention to work. Right now, millions of Americans are making important decisions about their healthcare coverage for next year. United Healthcare offers a couple tips to help you during this open enrollment period. First, know your enrollment dates. Employer plans typically select a time period in the fall for employees to choose their coverage. Enrollment for Medicare eligible participants runs from October 15th through December 7th. Second, Take time to understand the costs of each plan by comparing how much you pay each month, as well as deductibles, copays, and prescription drug coverage. For more tips, visit uhcopenenrollment.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tori. So, as you said, it is cold and flu season. I'm getting over a cold myself. And now it looks like the FDA may be removing one of the most common decongestants in the U.S. So, what happened with phenylephrine? Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me on. Um, so phenylephrine is a uh, an active ingredient that's been approved for a number of decades now to help treat uh, mild cold symptoms. Um, it initially met the standard of efficacy that was required when it got approved, but subsequently research has come out that suggested it is actually not effective. And so the recent story that broke either this fall or over the summer, um, was that the FDA had concluded that, in fact, the totality of evidence suggests phenylephrine is not effective compared to a placebo. And so there was first a spate of articles about how this was going to be handled, whether that active ingredient is still going to be uh, permitted to be used in medication. 
On October 19th, CVS Health announced that they will stop carrying many of the products that have phenylephrine as the only active ingredient. Do you think that the CVS move is the right one? I don't want to weigh in into exactly what should be done about it. I think the CVS decision highlights the tension between what we should do in terms of giving products that benefit patients, albeit due to the placebo effect, and the understandable inclination to protect patients from medications that are not effective compared to a placebo. So I want to back up a little bit um, and hear more about you. So how did you get interested in the placebo effect? Yeah, so I was a graduate student at University of Rhode Island when I started to really have an interest in the placebo effect. I would say it started in my master's thesis where I did a study and I wanted to see if social anxiety increased how much college students would drink alcohol. So me and my uh, uh, my former graduate advisor designed a study to look at that. But we had a difficult problem in that we couldn't, for a variety of logistical reasons, run the study with people that were 21 years or older. We actually had to include people that were not of legal drinking age. And so after going back and forth for quite a while, we decided that what we do is use placebo alcohol. And that really launched me into looking at a lot of research on the effects of placebo alcohol and how easy it is to convince people they're drinking alcohol when they're actually drinking a placebo. Um, And we designed a study using a lot of different techniques from social psychology on how you influence people. And ultimately, we were able to convince uh, a large number of underage college students that they were (laughs) getting alcohol in the lab, even though it would have been illegal for us to actually give it to them. Um, And that actually became more interesting to me than the substantive question of whether anxiety increases alcohol use. And so that really got me thinking about placebo effects more seriously. And I learned a little bit later that there's a group at Harvard called uh, the Program in Placebo Studies that studies this. And, you know, I had no idea that there were even scholars devoted to strictly the study of the placebo effect. But I reached out and was generously invited to come up and meet um, many of the experts up there. And that really launched my interest in the placebo effects when I started my postdoc. That was also an interesting time because this would have been in around 2017 and news of the opioid crisis was really gaining steam. And I found it fascinating that one of the conditions that the placebo effect is most effective for is pain. And obviously, um, pain and the opioid crisis really went hand in hand. So I developed an interest in seeing if we could leverage our knowledge of the placebo effect to um, help do something about the opioid crisis. That's fascinating. And I, I'm just picturing your lab and all of the undergrads as being like um, an episode of Freaks and Geeks in which the beer is replaced with an non-alcoholic beer and the high school students don't know it. It was a great episode if you've never seen it. Oh, yeah, I haven't. I'll have to, I'll have to take a look. Yeah, you know, we did all sorts of things. And, and many of these ideas were th- things that other researchers had developed. Um, for example, you, you, um, you, spray the, you spray alcohol. 
um, in the lab. So when you walk in, it has like the scent of alcohol. And the lab, by the way, was sort of a makeshift bar. Um, the, thing, <laughs> the thing that we actually did, which I think was different from all other work, is that we had what in psychology is called confederates, but really they're like actors. So they're people that everyone else in the session thinks is another real participant, but in reality, they're hired by me. And so this actor would um, do things like take a few sips of the of the drink and say, wow, I'm really feeling buzzed. And um, there are a couple of other statements like that that were designed to increase the perception of, of real alcohol being served. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, so now to kind of go back to what you were saying about the opioid epidemic and how pain is a condition that is pretty responsive to the placebo effect. You know, one of the things you mentioned in your first opinion article is that the definition of efficacy is essentially being better than a placebo. But if a placebo can sort of work, I think we all think of ourselves as being sort of better than the placebo effect, right? Mm. I mean, I know that I, I or we're not, being better but than, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> we're, and that, exactly, right? I mean, I think we all think of ourselves as not being someone who is really influenced by advertising. You're not someone who's influenced sure. by the placebo effect sure. because your brain is better than those brains. But our brains and yet are athletes all, make millions of dollars for product placement. Exactly. And it works. I, I'm sure this weekend I will buy something that I was convinced to buy by advertising. And yet yes. I will tell Probably myself more than that one is not. Thing. Probably, yes. So if if advertising works despite us knowing what's going on, if the placebo effect does sort of work, you know, what does it kind of mean for medicine that, you know, something can be nothing and still make a change? And like maybe doctors should find ways to take advantage of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I think doctors should find ways to leverage our understanding of expectations, of you know, expressing optimism. Um, a lot of times this sort of gets put under the umbrella of bedside manner. And really that is a very broad term uh, that covers a lot of different things underneath it. We have a perception that when physicians give a drug or prescribe a treatment, the thing that we should really focus on is the chemical ingredient in the drug or the active component of the treatment. What this obscures is that much of the benefit is going to be due to the placebo effect, the fact that if we expect to feel better, then we probably will. And I think the most dramatic example of this comes from a, a study of um, – uh, of surgery for knee pain from, I want to say, the the early 2000s by Bruce Mosley was the lead author. And, you know, he did this very clever study where he wanted to examine whether the surgery he was doing, he's an orthopedic surgeon, whether the surgery he's doing was effective. And so he uh, gave some people the real surgery as he would typically do in his clinical practice. And for other people, he would put them under anesthesia, he would cut their knee open, do an incision the same way, but not actually do anything. So it was called a, sh it's a sham surgery controlled study. And then he followed these patients for one year. And those that got the sham surgery experienced just as much pain relief as those that got the real surgery. Um, and this is really something that's it's, it's astounding, to be quite honest. Uh, the last thing we would ever think 
is that a surgery is effective because of the placebo effects. And yet many times that's exactly what's happening. Um, I believe in a review that I was reading recently, and I think it's something like there have been a total of five of these sham controlled orthopedic surgery studies. And I want to say that of the five, four of them found that the surgery was no more effective than a placebo surgery. Wow, that's um, that's really surprising. And when you say effective, like how effective can the placebo effect be? That's another. I know it's going to vary wildly. Yeah, and that that's another great question, and it also gets at um, a difficult methodological question because if you want to talk about how effective the placebo effect is what you really need to do is compare a placebo to no treatment. Because if you give someone a placebo and their symptoms improve, certainly the placebo effect, the idea, well, I expect this drug to make me feel better, therefore I do feel better, that is likely to play a role. But then there's also just the passage of time that's likely to play a role. So uh, if you have a headache, you have a cold, whatever, I mean, you can do nothing and symptoms get better, get worse over time, usually they get better. So distinguishing the placebo effect from the passage of time is more difficult than it might seem because for that, you actually need to do a study where you give some people a placebo and then for others, you give them nothing. So you simply follow them and see how they do spontaneously without drug and without placebo. Then you compare the placebo to the group that gets nothing. Is there a really broad range, you know, so the placebo effect seems to be smaller for some sorts of treatment and larger for others? Yes, definitely. So, you know, there's plenty of things that the placebo is not going to be effective for. Uh, The placebo seems to be most effective for conditions that are psychosomatic in nature, and that's why pain is such a good one. Um, Also, depression is another very common uh, example of a powerful placebo effect. So... One question I have is if the placebo effect can actually be pretty powerful, does talking about the placebo effect remove its power? You know, now that, you know, as you said in your essay, lots of people who take um, Sudafed PE think that or experience, um, you know, a, a lack of congestion afterward. Does telling people that the medicine doesn't actually work make it less effective? So what you're getting at is an area that researchers have started to look at for the past around, I don't know, 12 to 15 years. And so they've done these studies of what's called an open-label placebo, where you give someone a placebo and you tell them it's a placebo. Um, You know, the idea behind that, well, most people would hear that and think there's absolutely no way that a placebo will work in that circumstance. And to the surprise of many, these open-label placebos do seem to be effective. So people that are getting a placebo and knowing it's one still improve relative to to not getting an open-label placebo. Um, Now, there are a number of methodological things to think through for how you design those studies. And um, this is sort of still a new area, so I would say – It'll be interesting to see how it looks later on as more and more of these rigorous trials comes out without going too much into the weeds. You know, it centers around the idea of, um, you know, we we understand that you use a placebo to control for an active drug. But if you want to study the placebo, how do you control for the placebo? 
it's difficult to think about what the right control condition for that is. And so that's where I think we do need a little bit more work to figure out exactly how much the open label placebos work, for what conditions they might, and um, what the right control condition for that is. I mean, and I guess another sort of ethical question that all of this raises to me is that, you know, if phenylephrine, however you pronounce it, I, I, I struggle with all these drug names, um, you know, if it works in the sense that the placebo effect works, and if you're saying that there's still some value for some consumers, my husband being one of them who, you know, he he loves his Sudafed PE, it works yep. well for him, mm-hmm. um, you know, is like how do you think about the way companies make money off of what is essentially the placebo effect? You know how how do you balance that? That there is some real benefit for patients, but you know it also feels like a little bit shady from the manufacturer point of view. I need to think about how to respond to that one. Uh, I don't think there's a great answer to that. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a great ethical question, and I, I I hesitate to weigh in here. I think it's a it's a good question for ethicists to to think about. Now, I want to change gears a little bit. You edited a book, or it's I can't remember if it's out now or coming out soon about out the notion. Oh, great! Well, I'll put in my pre order today. Oh, um, terrific! It, it's about the nocebo effect. So, what is the nocebo effect? So the nocebo effect is the opposite of the placebo effect. The placebo effect is the idea that you get better or your symptoms improve as a result of expectation. And the nocebo effect are instances where you have a negative expectation. You think something's going to hurt you, for example, or you're going to start to feel sick. And then that in turn causes you to hurt or feel sick. So, you know, what are some examples of, of that happening that you found in your research? Or that authors write about in your book? Yeah. Um, I think the most – well, let me, give, let me give one example that people probably experience in everyday life. And this is just sort of an anecdote is, you know, if you've ever gotten a shot or you've had a blood draw, you know, oftentimes you'll hear a nurse or a med tech saying, you know, you're about to feel a pinch right now. And that's a great example of what is – very vulnerable to be a nocebo reaction. So if they weren't to say that, the pain probably wouldn't be as bad. But now because you're expecting to feel a pinch or you're expecting to feel a sting, it is more likely to hurt. Um, You know, a good example of a study on the nocebo effect comes out of a a group from Italy where they gave... um, they gave patients a medication, all received the same medication, but only some were told about various side effects that might be a result of that, and others were not told about those side effects. And the people that were told they might experience these particular symptoms from a medication were much more likely to actually have those symptoms in reality. So this is the idea that you know, if you expect that you might feel sick as a result of taking a drug or a treatment, you're more likely to actually get sick from it. And we also probably saw this a lot when it came to the, the COVID vaccines. Um, you know, there's tons of reports, especially early on, about how the various shots made people sick. People were taking days off work afterwards. And 
The reality, though, is when you look at the data from the placebo-controlled vaccine trials, a lot of the symptoms were experienced by people who were in the placebo group, not just people in the group who received the actual vaccine. That's so interesting. Just in terms of, you know, things like side effects, as you said, you know, on the one hand, you can see how you don't want to overwarn people and then have them be sort of end up experiencing effects they wouldn't have. But also, you know, I think there's been this shift to being very transparent about side effects because patients deserve to know they're not imagining things. I mean, how do you sort of think about how to balance those? It's extremely hard. Um, Certainly, it's, it's what's so difficult about it is that there's two things that medicine holds as sacred. One is that you always want to be honest and transparent with your patients. And the other is that you, you know, um, from the Hippocratic Oath, want to do no harm. And it's really challenging because what do you do when being transparent actually does cause harm? Um, And this is a very deep, very fundamental question that the field of medicine has to wrestle with. I don't think there's any easy solutions for it, um, but it's something we want to be aware of and we want physicians, I would say, to have some form of guidelines or at least recommendations for, for what to do in those situations, or at least a framework for how to think about it in their day-to-day practice. Yeah, I, I was thinking about one time in my early 20s when I I experimented with a homeopathic treatment for something or other. And, mm-hmm. you know, my doctor asked me what I was doing about this very mild problem. And I told her and she sort of paused for a second and said, well, if it doesn't seem to work, then you can stop doing that. And I I just feel like that was the perfect response that she didn't, you know, sort of shame me for trying something that she yep. knew would not affect yep. anything, that it was literally just a water pill. Yep. But yep. she didn't. And she told me, you know, not to keep doing it if it didn't work, but she didn't sort of invalidate it. And I just thought that was such yep. a, a a nice approach. Yeah. Well, she, she sounds like a good provider. You know, the other thing that doctors can say in circumstances like that is, you know, um, you could imagine saying to a patient, uh, um, yes, there are many people who do feel better from that remedy. And, you know, that's not dishonest. There are many people who do feel better. Um, it's hopefully validating to the patients. And it's also likely, funny enough, to make the treatment work even better because now you perhaps have someone coming in, they're a little unsure whether to admit to the doctor that they're doing a homeopathic remedy and they think the physician might look down on it. And, um, you know, you do validating the patient when you can do so honestly is, is certainly is certainly important. And, and it goes even more to um, the way in which subtle, subtle changes in language can have big impacts. So like another good example of this is, um, and there have been studies, studies on this one as well, you're better off hearing from a doctor something to the effect of three and four patients who take this drug have no side effects at all mm. versus mm-hmm. uh, 25% of people who take this drug do get side effects. Both conveys accurate information. It's 
the same information, but one is phrased more positively than the other. And so the more doctors can do to not be manipulative, of course, but to phrase phrase things as positively as possible, the more it's ultimately going to help the patients. I should say, too, that the homeopathic remedy did absolutely nothing for me, and I was <laughs> mad at myself for wasting money on it, yeah, but I wanted yeah. to be honest with my doctor yeah, about Sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, many, you know, many people, it's... it's uh, Many people get relief from homeopathy, oh, I, yeah. and that's because many people get relief from placebos. All right. And now my final question, is there anything you find yourself reaching for that you think in your heart might be a placebo effect? For me, it's ginger ale that I know contains no real ginger, but it it always works. Is there anything like that for you? Boy, I don't even know where to start because there's so many <laughs> like that for me. Um <laughs> Yes. One good example is, you know, I see a chiropractor every month for some mild back pain. And I could swear that what the chiropractor does helps relieve my pain. And in reality, much of it is probably placebo. Um, another example of this is a few years ago, I started to get pretty bad headaches late in the afternoon. And I... Um, it was suggested to me that I should see an optometrist and, and see if maybe the issue had to do with the fact that uh, I, had a, I had an eyesight problem. So I go to the optometrist and, you know, I have what is uh, – I was given a prescription for glasses the lowest grade possible that one can have for a prescription. So my eyesight was just sort of a hair off. And yet, as soon as I got the glasses and started wearing them, my headaches went away. Um, and I, I find it hard to believe that a um, such a minimal prescription was really curing my headaches. It was probably just the expectation of it. Well, I'm glad it worked, regardless of the, the mechanism. Michael Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. Our producer is Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. And I would love to hear more from our listeners. So let me know what first opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show and what topics the podcast and column should take on. You can email me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And yes, I know I'm asking again, please leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself.